This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Hello and welcome to the first episode of our mini-series. Just like in the main series, we want to continue to highlight news coming from the expedition world. And today we do have some very sad news which has come out in the last week. In the last episode of the main series, we talked about the amazing success of Christine Harala and Tenjing Sherpa, who now hold the world record for summiting the world's 14 highest peaks in the quickest time. But sadly, last week, Tenjing Lama Sherpa went missing in an avalanche in the Himalayas on Mount Shishma Pangma. It's presumed that he's died on the mountain along with the team that he was guiding. I want to quote something from Christine's page. Lama's indomitable spirit has always inspired us all with his dedication and kindness. His mountaineering legacy will forever shine brightly and his memory will be etched in our hearts. Our prayers go out to Lama and his family as well as to those who went missing and perished on Shishma Pangma. She said, Lama, you will forever be to me the definition of human kindness. You were proud of being Sherpa and your passion for the mountains inspired me again and again. On the mountains, you were so confident, so knowledgeable. You moved in unity with the mountains. You were home and you so kindly invited me in. Matt, you know what I find crazy is despite all the media attention around the success of their 14 peaks record, there is nothing in the news about the loss of this legend. I know it's absolutely wild. Um, I mean, this isn't the first time that this has happened, has it? You know, we've had similar things. NIMS has been pushing for an awfully long time for recognition for the Sherpas. And, you know, this is guides in general everywhere. Yeah. There's always this drive for the individual who's ultimately paying, whether they're paying through sponsorship or paying themselves to get to a destination, if that's the top of a mountain or the bottom of an ocean or... And it's the guide. It's the guide who facilitates that. Um, and, you know, even if we look back through the news, you know, the only person who's really pushed Lama to the front of the spotlight has been Kristin herself. Because yeah. all the media that surrounded it has only really focused on her and her achievement. And she's been the only person who's really held on to that true integrity of what happened on the mountain is it was her and him against the elements, not just her. You know... Lama passed away, potentially, um, or certainly disappeared on the 7th of October. What is it now? The 18th? Yeah. It's not made the news. It's not made an inst. I mean, the only reason I was aware of it is because I follow Kristin Horrela. Um, and she's put a huge amount of information out. She's flown back out there herself to help with any issues um, and continue the search and to look for the rest of the climbing party. I think it's... It's about time now that we started to recognize the true legends of these environments and, and give them the respect that they deserve when things ultimately go wrong, which is a part of this industry. Um, there's a reason that they're extreme feats of achievement, and that's because the chance of you know, meeting your demise is relatively high. Um, and we tend not to talk about that. We tend not, to, you know, these people just disappear between the cracks even though he himself has quite possibly facilitated thousands of summits yeah, for, sure. for people uh, who have had really good, positive success after achieving that thing. You know, they've come back off a mountain, they've been celebrated for being something inc extremely uh, incredible and, and doing something amazing. But these people remain forgotten. They remain in the shadows. 
but without them, these things will never happen. And uh, and I think that's that's something that we really need to to look at. And you know, if we look at Lama himself, who's leaving behind his, his beautiful wife and two boys, um, we're actually going to put a, a link down in the bottom of the description of this post because there is a a fundraiser um, to help search and for body recovery and things to bring Lama home off of the mountain. Um, in our minds, you know, he'll never be forgotten. Uh, but we do need to remember that actually people need to know he existed, so that he remains unforgotten and that's really the the kind of main push here isn't it you know to run the biggest mountains in the world to smash that record to bring what was already it seemed unreal when it was done yeah. in six months and then you drop that you half that you know you do those 14 peaks in three months and everything that that comes with and the prestige that that comes with and obviously christian Haller is very aware of the prestige that came with um, you know, obviously living in Norwegian in Norway, she's been on every single Norwegian uh, Norwegian TV program. She's been on news interviews. She's been around Europe doing interviews. She's all over social media. The benefits are obviously great for people like that, and she's really the only one who's tried to share that with Lama. And I think, why are we as the businesses that are supporting these events? We really should be celebrating these people much more and remembering that without them there'll be no further climbs, you know, yeah. she would never have got to where she was without people like that. And I think everyone else needs to remember that because she certainly hasn't forgotten that. She's very much aware of, you know, all of that assistance. You read that in what she's written, you know, that mm. he so kindly invited her in um, and allowed her to be a part of that, those mountains and his home. But it should be more than just her that's, uh, that's really kind of mourning this loss. Cause that's a, that's a huge loss for everybody within mountaineering it's a huge loss for anybody who wants to achieve these things because the fewer and fewer people we have like him we lose that access because people are physically incapable of doing it on their own we need the local knowledge the local experts to make these things happen um i mean we can draw reference to that all over to any part of expedition travel where the without the guide and having been an expedition guide for an extremely long time mm. and having worked with locals who these local fixers who put the things together who know exactly where to go you could spend an extra six months triple your budget for the expedition just to find out where these things are or you could go and approach a local fixer and a local guide and and absorb that information and work with them but again if they're always going to remain just the local fixer there's really no prestige in that and um it's very easy for that mm. person to be forgotten and for me to get all of the praise for putting on such a fantastic expedition with all of these cool little hidden secrets, those hidden secrets were not mine. Um, and I, I feel that, you know, we should all work harder at, uh, at ensuring that the guides and the, the true people who put these things together remain in the spotlight. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's still now you, you ask somebody who, you know, who's the first to summit successfully summit Mount Everest and you know, everyone says Edmund Hillary. You know, where's Tenzing Norgay? He was evidently, you know, everyone that knows, knows that he was the guy that really made it happen. And they were a team. And it's, it is a shame. I mean, you know, you look at these people that this is their career. This is their life. They're not getting paid massive amounts of money to do what they're, they're doing. They rely heavily still within the industry on tips uh, because of, of the industry that it's in. And it's not just you know, people in Nepal or people in Tanzania for Kilimanjaro, 
you know, the whole expedition industry is so reliant on either volunteers or low paid work, or at the very worst, you know, people having to pay to actually work on the on the expedition itself. And it's something which, you know, we've often talked about is something that needs to change. And hopefully, you know, eventually soon it will. I mean, it's a huge theme, isn't it? You know, mm. if we draw reference to that, to the expedition medic, for example, you know, an expedition medic costs, it costs quite a lot of money because it's not just, you know, we take an expedition medic with us on an expedition. So we're covering transfer costs, in-country costs, food, water, hotel places, any initial equipment they need. We have to make sure we provide him an up-to-date medical kit for them. But then we've got to look at things like, well, this person is no longer in hospital. Mm. So they're no longer working. Now, neither is anybody else on the expedition apart from the expedition guide because he is at work. But I would argue equally that the medic is very much at work. You know, we've For talked sure, yeah. many times before on this forum about how an expedition medic is a lot more than just a talking med kit. They have, <laughs> yeah. they have to be active members of an expedition team, which means they're genuinely earning the money. They're working hard. They're doing all of the shitty jobs. They're digging toilets. They're checking people's feet at six o'clock in the morning. Mm. They're running to the person who's got cramp at 3 a.m. If we're going to do all of those things and remember that they have to have indemnity, yeah. that's often not even included in packages from companies who are hiring in medical professionals to work on their expeditions. They're not coming with an offer of, you know, come on the expedition, you can come for free, we'll cover your indemnity and we'll cover these things. You know, they're almost unheard of. The reality of that is, do you want to come on my expedition and be a doctor? I'll give you a 10% discount and you come with your own indemnity. And Why on earth should an expedition medic pay more than a client to be on the same expedition um, and be expected to to work. And yeah. ultimately, the work they're doing is to save people's lives if it's required. And so, all the other stuff. And all the other things, yeah. yeah, and all the other jobs that go with it. Because, yeah. you know, from experience, generally a small expedition of, I don't know, seven to 12 people, you don't need more than an expedition guide and an expedition medic. That's enough. Sometimes mm -hmm. those two jobs are rolled into one. So Which is its both. own thing, isn't it? That's its yeah. own danger right there. And, you know, you, you put yourself in a pretty awkward position. Um, we're very lucky within, like, UE, we have access to many, many helpers, these assistants who are looking for this free work that you just touched on. You know, one of the mm. main ways into this industry is to volunteer or to pay because we have to have the experience. And the experience is vital. Of course it is. But I think if you're giving somebody the opportunity to be a medic, then you are going away from the fact that they're an apprentice you're going away from the fact that they're an assistant they're a medic which means they're in a full-time permanent role within the expedition that yeah. has a continuous 24-hour day role that they have to be ready to stand up into and i just feel that we're kind of at a point now where like it really needs to stop yeah people have to be covered for what they are and matt how do you think we deal with that catch-22 you know it's the same with if you want to go do humanitarian relief, you know, you need to have experience to go gain that experience. And, you know, you said it as well, you know, I've got bills. I work four jobs to be able to, to do the expeditions that I do or to do the diving that I do to, to gain these skills. And I'm constantly trying to do other courses or qualifications or just get hours up. But how do we deal with this catch-22 of, you know, if people actually, the people that really want to do this as a job, 
are not the ones that can do it for free. So how do we deal with that? Yeah, well, that's that's the real catch-22, is that usually the people who would be the best for the role are either A, too expensive, or B, unwilling to do it for nothing because they've got the experience. Um, and equally, the ones who are willing to do it for free are the ones who are in a position like you are who fully understand that the only way I'm going to break into this industry is by having this resume which is filled with experience. I have done 45 expeditions in the last 10 years. I have been to every climate. I've been to all reaches of the Earth's globe. I've had X amount of guests every time I've been on expedition. I've dealt with these issues. You know, that of course, that's the dream resume. Right? Yeah. That's exactly what you want. You want someone to come in and be the best in the game. The problem is, is the best in their game are often unavailable. Um, yeah. They get snatched up by businesses. You know, I'm very happy. I'm very proud to say that within UE, we have some of the very best wilderness medics that uh, you can find anywhere. But I also have to accept that those same wilderness medics are going to work for other companies. Yeah, They're going to teach in other establishments. And I also kind of agree with that. You know, I want them to have the very highest level of training. I want them to be completely and utterly up to date on procedures and processes for how we deal with things. I want them to hold the most up-to-date qualifications. I want them to be have just come back from an expedition and be completely there and completely in the groove and everything's working fine. As we talk about people allowing themselves to get into the industry, you know, it's a really difficult one because there is no plan B. The fact is, is that the ceiling of income is always dealt out to the participants of the expedition. And mm. if you start tripling the cost of an expedition just to cover the true costs of what we're doing, we have less and less people traveling on an expedition. We have less and less opportunities to get out there and do it, which means people have less and less opportunity to get that um, experience and build those things up. So we have to find a balance. And I, I personally feel that that balance for me sits very much in how we label people, how we identify their roles and what the expectation of that role is. So it's not unheard of, uh, and I've done this many times, that when we have um, interns or we have apprentices coming through the system, if I have the ability to take one of those people out on an expedition or two of them out on an overseas expedition, mm. I'll tend to run it at as cheap as physically possible. And that's usually cheaper than the cost price. It will eat into the profits that are made from the guests being there. So for an expedition of two and a half, three thousand pounds, they might be expected to pay eight, nine hundred pounds to go on that trip. But whilst they're there, there is never an expectation that they're going to work every single day. They are there to gain experience of being on an expedition. So they're more than welcome to shadow, shadow the expedition medic, be there on the med post on a morning and be a part of that daily foot routine, go around and get an understanding of how it works, help out with doing things, but not have the, I don't know, just not have that, that kind of actual role that is there to be filled every second of every day. And that's where we sit right now. You're an apprentice. Mm. I'm going to use and abuse you for two weeks so that you can do all the rubbish jobs, all the washing up, all the cleaning, all the coffee making at 6 a.m. before I've got out of my hammock on a morning. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's not really the best way to do it because when I'm building there, that's kind of the way it's always been. It's mm. exactly how it was when I started. You know, when you start, you are digging toilet long drops. You are putting shelters up in the pissing rain you're the guy running around fixing the tarp when everything's collapsed 
you're the one getting up at 4am making the coffee, you're the one who's washing up still at 10pm after dinner while everyone else is sitting on the beach relaxing. And it sucks. But you do learn the expedition from the ground up. You understand mm. all of its elements. You understand exactly what goes into making an expedition work. So there is a benefit there. But I think as soon as you take somebody on as an employee, they have to be paid for that. And you certainly can't expect them to pay to be that. And that's, and that's the reality. Now, even with, you know, either, um, you know, we're not going to name names, but there's companies out there which are asking senior medical doctors to go on ex- expeditions to climb mountains and pay, you know, something in the region of £4,000. I think it's ridiculous. It, it, it's honestly ridiculous. And, it's, and it's, then what are you saying to the industry, which is how do we value you? But the problem is, is that for now, at least, the industry hasn't come together to say enough is enough because if I say no to doing a job I'll either get excommunicated you know I'm, I'm just cancelled and people won't hire me and also there's someone that will do it for cheaper will pay or yeah. you know will do it for free that's willing to take my shoes and I'm sort of getting to this position now you know I've been doing this for just about two years uh, in different roles you know digging latrines you said i did it with a stick because we didn't yeah. bring a shovel i'm bringing a shovel i bring a shovel everywhere now as the people that went to kyrgyzstan with me know but even the kyrgyzstan expedition i did which is for charity that was five weeks of my life i didn't get paid uh there were expenses as well for the training um programs that happened beforehand but you know i still had rent to pay i still had bills to pay and you can't just continuously do this. And it's that really hard part for me at the moment is figuring out when do I have enough experience to go from doing the grunt work? And I don't mind doing grunt work, you know, like grunt work's grunt work. But where do you go from there to then saying, okay, like I'm now ready. Yeah, and the, the thing is, it's not a progression, is it? There's no natural no. progression because a natural progression would be you start on a minimum salary, you get the shitty jobs and you get promoted. Yeah. And then you run a different salary with different responsibilities and then you get promoted and you have different salary and different responsibilities and so on and so forth until you get to the point where you wear whatever your goal was. The issue with this is, is that process hasn't even started yet. You've not even started. What you are is a competent helper. Yeah. An unpaid competent helper. Usually someone who's paying to be there. And from the back side of this, from the expedition guide in the, the business ownership side, if you have the opportunity and and your expedition is warrant enough to have a doctor with you, mm. you cannot hand on heart say that you're willing to take a trainee paramedic or a trainee doctor who's paying you to now be on that expedition. I feel that that goes completely against the risk assessing of the expedition. Totally, it goes yeah. completely against the protocols we ourselves set out within the industry for the betterment of all of the people on the expedition. Mm. We get to this stage where we start to play God a little bit with people's survival chances based on money. And the true fact is, is that we need to be honest as an industry of what it actually costs to go on expedition. And equally, we need to be honest about the dangers of the expedition because we all know full well that there is certain expeditions people pay to go on which actually you could do yourself you know yeah, a lot sure. of these kind of trips with a little bit of ingenuity and a little bit of pre-training you could absolutely do a Kilimanjaro alone okay it's 
a very high mountain. There is certainly things to consider whilst we're there. A real good understanding of mountain medicine. But all those things are accessible. They're accessible for a couple of hundred pounds. Yeah. Come to Scotland in January. Come and do the mountain medicine course with us in Scotland. Get some of those skills. Do it as a team. Get your mountains in. Do the preparation. Bang yourself on an ML for the year or so before. Build up those skills. Go out and do it. Absolutely. That's what everyone else did, right? That's what we all did back in the day. People just went out and, and did, did it. Things. Yeah. But now it's almost become a. I think the industry in in all elements of adventure has changed. Right. We've got to a point where we facilitate this ability for people to get in these wild locations. You know, I can draw reference to, I'm a paddler, right? I've been paddling whitewater canoe for most of my adult life. Stupid stuff. You know, we used to compete the King of the Alps. We designed boats. We've done, I've done a lot of cool things. But we started to notice when boat designs got better, when we had now, you know, CAD designing for boat shapes and hull displacements and new rocker profiles on canoes and kayaks, you were finding people taking on river sections which they would have never have been close to. They should they're never be anywhere near them. Yeah. They're not ready. But the fact that the vessel they're in now is much more stable and it's mm. much more capable of dealing with this environment, all of a sudden we end up with a lot of deaths. People are incapable of doing it. And maybe when we look at expedition travel, you know, there has been huge advancements there too. We can now get closer to places. We can get led into a false sense of security by having an in-reach strapped to our chest. Oh, for sure. Oh, but it's yeah. fine. I just press this button and a helicopter is going to come and pick me up in 20 minutes and it's all going to be fine. That adds this false sense of security, this false sense of confidence. Yeah. And you couple that with a distinct lack of experience and all of a sudden we have some pretty big issues. Add into that this, this culture of, Instagram imagery, making myself a known person, wanting to become almost a celebrity within the field by using adventure. Yeah. The true factor that is, is that we've just lost one of those legends who should have been an Instagram legend. He's just disappeared on a mountain on the 7th of October and no one knows his name. But there's a probably at least 100 people who have been up a mountain with him in the last two, three years who have all got some form of recognition and payback from doing those things. And they weren't experienced enough. They didn't have the skill sets. They certainly didn't have anything close to the experience he had. Um, so I, I do feel we need to find the balance. How we do that, I'm not so sure. I, I agree. We need to unify as an industry. Um, we need to set a standard for what is... Equally, you know, the other thing to remember here, when we talk about medics, there's no standard for medics. No. We haven't got a fixed body that decides the level a medic should be at before they can take a particular job. We have just started doing things with trail med. We're doing an assessment center for their medics so that we can try and start that standardization. So we can try and look at it objectively. And these are the key elements that we need to have within an expedition medic. But that's quite a, it's quite a vague element to work in you know what we can do in one location in wales you know how far do we stretch that how far can i sign you off to say you're competent without yeah. actually taking you to the mountains without taking you to the jungle without taking you into the desert and seeing how you really work well we find that in your experience right we and also taking you back as well you know it's exactly. not just going once which is the yeah. thing that people say oh i'm an expedition medic i've been i've been here i've been there um and there is an argument for both you know, you need to spread yourself wide enough so that you you are what I like to call to my family that, you know, I have to explain what I'm trying to do in my life. You've got to become the Swiss Army knife. 
but you also can't you know i've been to the jungle twice i would not be confident taking a jungle expedition now no i want 10 trips before i really do it but the thing is is that you're seeing that from a slightly different perspective than others do because there's Mm. plenty of people who do one jungle expedition and are all of a sudden jungle guides and then they'll create a website and they'll do that and then they'll take people's money and you know what 99.9 percent of the time that goes absolutely great it's not an issue at all but when it goes wrong jesus christ that has on the entire industry is vast yeah um and where do you all sit you know you you just all sitting there now trying to defend yourself for something that someone else in a completely different segment of the industry has done um and it has a huge knock-on effect it has a massive knock-on effect in the confidence of the guests yeah is something like that going to happen on their trip you know you get this a lot with diving companies you travel out to malaysia you find out that someone died six weeks ago yeah who's whose fault is that you know is it the guy who turned up who hasn't actually dived in six years who lied on the application form and said he did a test dive six months ago just so that he could get it a bit cheaper didn't have to faff around sitting in a pool with people who hadn't dived before so he could get out on a boat and go and dive yeah is it his fault or is it the guides who are underpaid, undervalued, and you know living off peanuts with dodgy equipment because that's all that's provided for them by the providers? Or is it the company for balancing? You know, and for me, that sits with the company. It always mm. sits with the people who make the most profit because you know greed is where it all goes wrong. Yeah, I'm going to sit here in my nice warm office in the UK, and all my crew are going to be out being paid peanuts over in Malaysia running a diving school and my clients are going to come in and we're not really so strict and we're not really that serious about stuff but you know what every month i'm cashing big checks there has to it has to start with the businesses themselves but for that to happen they have to be made aware of it and i think the industry is the only thing the the individuals within the industry Mm. are the only ones who can really bring it up so that the businesses have to kind of they can't deny it anymore you can't hide from Mm. the fact but we also need to take responsibility. You know, you, you talk about the diving and, you know, not being competent or at least not being current mm. in your diving. You know, I have three logbooks now. I've got my open circuit logbook. I've got my technical logbook and I'm now starting commercial diving. So I've got now a commercial logbook. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about the fact that these actually could be online and they're starting to slowly become online. But just like Paddy can check all my qualifications against my name on the Paddy server, it should be that you have to have, if you want to go diving in a foreign country, you have to have your logbook with you. Just like if you want to fly a plane, you have to have all your hours logged. We need to take more responsibility for that. In the commercial world, it's like that already. You know, they're very strict. All the laws that I'm having to learn now to do commercial diving, it's, it's very strict from the health and safety executive in the UK. But in the recreational world, you know, there's this zero to hero program. You yeah. go from never scuba diving to being a dive master leave, leading dives, and then maybe even an instructor within three to eight months. Yeah, I know it's wild, isn't it? I'm it, not it, going it, it, diving it, with someone that's not been diving. <laughs> Do you know no, what I mean? But the thing is, is you don't know. That's the problem. Yeah. Because in this day and age, you know, you can create a very fancy website super quick. You've got the additions of AI. You can have really kind of flavorsome language. And this, you know, really kind of draws you into the website. The imagery is good. You know, anything can be made Instagram. Anything can be made with beautiful filters and great shots. And you can sign up to something without knowing what you're letting yourself in for, without really understanding who your guides are, um, and put yourself in harm's way. And I think 
it's it comes back to I mean I love the idea of the um, the login. You know, for me, I log every expedition I do. I make notes of who the clients were. I have folders of clients that go back years. Um, you know, I remove all of the med stuff out of there and things. But all GDPR is, compliant, I'm sure. Yes, Matt. absolutely. It's all handwritten. <laughs> You know, but it, it all sits there and it's got a breakdown of what happened on the expedition, any issues we had, any amazing things that happened, animals we saw, what locations they were. I have small sketches of snakes and things that we've seen along the way. Mm. But what that also gives me is a record to go back to. Um, you know, last time I was in that location, what was it like? I go back to the book and I can read through the last expedition we did, remember those small shortcomings we had. You know, we had a bit of an issue. There wasn't so much water coming out of that particular water source. I'd noted in the book that maybe we should identify a secondary base camp location just in case. You know, by doing that, it it establishes some level of competence. You have a yeah. rough idea of where you stand, but it also gives you confidence in yourself that when I'm going there, I'm not going there blind. And from an expedition in perspective, going somewhere blind is the epitome of an expedition, right? Because you, the whole idea of exploration is to go somewhere you've never been and explore it that can be four hours or four months it's kind of irrelevant mm. but when we talk about that on a commercial perspective then really it has to be the same we should have the same level of accuracy and dedication to every part we do we should not be jumping blocks we should be making the location as safe as possible whilst keeping that integrity of it's a true natural resource and this area is wild yeah always remembering that we can't control the environment but again back to you you know the experience how the hell do you control the effects of an environment that are out of your control if you've never experienced the environment in that particular situation if you've yeah. never been in the jungle in monsoon season but you're not really aware of the effects of monsoon season on the jungle and therefore you're not aware of the effects on, on that jungle on your team and but that's the crazy done, thing. But isn't you've it? done four expeditions to the jungle, so now you should be a legend, you know. And, yeah. and that's the problem. And it's also people assuming that you know every. Yeah, uh, yeah, we I did a, a talk on jungles the other day. Every jungle was different, and just like you said, every season in the jungle is different for that part of the jungle. So if you're going to go do a recce, the craziest thing I see is people say, "Okay, I want to do an expedition, July twenty twenty four. We're going to go to the jungle. Let's just say we're doing that." And then they say, well, we'll do the recce in January. And then that will give us six months before we go, we go do you know, the mm. main expedition. But you haven't done the recce for when you're actually going to the jungle. Yeah. You need to do it in July 2023 or you push the expedition. Yeah. Because that's the only way you can be safe. And I think it's this mentality that needs to change in the individual. Not just you know for the medics and the leaders who you have a responsibility, not just for your team but also for yourself and for the people that you're working with because at the end of the day just like in healthcare uh it, you know in terms of danger you know the most important person is me then it's my team then it's you know bystanders then it's the victim then it's you know anything else uh, their equipment yeah uh, so how do we mitigate that risk and you know for me i did a course called Offsite Safety Management, and I recommend everyone to do this course. It's two days, it's all theoretical based, but it really goes into how you perceive and deal with risk. Yeah. And that's something that people miss out. They see all the Gucci stuff of, you know, let's go get a uh, mountain medicine, very important course, prolonged field care, you know, how to deal with someone more than 72 hours, how to get your mountain leader skills. But 
the background stuff, all the prep, just like in this podcast, all the prep we do for the podcast yeah. is more important because the work you do then, thinking about, um, you know, let, let's take, uh, you know, Palestine right now or, or Morocco or Libya, which, you know, uh, you know, a couple months ago, there were no earthquakes in Morocco, there were no floods in Libya, and there was no violence going on in Palestine. If you're running an expedition to these places, you need to be prepared for all the things that could happen. You know, when we do our risk assessments, Matt, I've seen one of yours, it's very similar to mine. I'm thinking about counter-terrorism, plane hijackings. I'm thinking about fires in buildings. How, like, what, what floor of a hotel are we in? Yeah. What's our access and egress? If we need to get airlifted because there's some sort of civil unrest and the only way out is by helicopter, can I land a you know, can a helicopter come pick us up off this roof, or am I stuck in the middle of a bazaar? Yeah. And it's all alleyways, you know. And people don't think about it. They think, oh, it's fine. And ninety nine percent of the time, it is. But but I think that comes down to this requirement for mm. people to achieve, right? Everybody sets the goal of January, oh sorry, July twenty twenty four. We're going to the jungle. Mm. right so it's it's happening whether we like it or not it's happening whether because we're ready or not yeah yeah because i've told people now i'm going to the jungle and i've started buying equipment and I've i must go i must and, go yeah so regardless of what's happening yeah you know we we me and you are supposed to be going to morocco in what is it five months yeah very soon yeah. as it stands right now we need to be completely sure that you know, for me, I have to look at that in twofold. One, are the guests going to have the same experience that I'm trying to sell them? Of course. Are yeah. there going to be elements of that that are no longer available? In which case, we have to be very careful with what we sell to people. But on the other side, am I going to become a hindrance to the local community in a time when they actually need to be focusing on themselves and not focusing on making me look cool with my clients and taking them to nice places? Are we doing a disservice to the local community by overstressing them at this point mm. or is it a welcome break is the money that we're paying actually very much needed in the industry and we're going to allow people to continue their redevelopment of their products and allow themselves to survive what's a, an ultimately really difficult time you know in those conversations we have to have with the providers we have to have them with the local guides we have to talk we have to kind of discuss things at a political level and see where we sit is it a good idea or is it not mm. and only then can we sit down as a team and make a decision and maybe float that with the clients? But nine, I mean, even through the COVID crisis, yeah, I had hell on trying to get people to accept that we weren't going on expedition. People really, really wanted to go on expedition. Mm. And the fact that, but you can't get there. That's not, it wasn't really a good enough answer for some people. You know, the, the ability for us to not run something because of an outside effect, it, it looks bad. It does look bad on you as a business when you can't provide the experience. But, you know, most of the time, the reason that happens is because something's happened in the world that's had this negative effect on travel, transport, you know, yeah. generally being in an area, which makes it no longer possible. Now, a great expedition guide is able to give you an alternative option, right? We were supposed to be going to the jungles of Southeast Asia. However, I happen to know a guy who's got a really cool place in Guyana. So we're going to go there instead. Who's interested? It's this trip. These elements have changed. These are the new parts. Who's in? That's a cool place. It's a safe area we can travel to. But again, if you've got an expedition guide without those resources and without that experience, that's your expedition done. Which means that 
all the time you've booked off work to be the expedition medic you don't get paid for all the time that the you know the, the clients have booked off work and sorted childcare and done all the bits and not only that but spent thousands on equipment yeah you know you have to accept the fact that it's not going to happen but it's always down to safety it's always to do mm. with safety and i feel we're a bit lapsed with safety we allow this allure of kind of greatness this ability to kind of celebrate our triumphs online to shadow the fact that safety has to be paramount everywhere i mean i love risk assessments assessments, it's so fun (laughs) my long flight you know that kind of 12 and a half hours from qa into kuala lumpur or something that's the flight when everyone else is snoring away fast asleep that can break out the computer and just start re-updating the the risk assessments and like you say, going through all those elements of your head, what it's like to travel in a foreign country, what traveling's like on your own. I think that's a, another one we'd love to do as a little short. Is For sure. General solo traveling, What it's because that in itself is a vast risk. You've got all your equipment, your passports, all your bits and pieces with you. You, know, you probably don't you speak do the language. Yeah, you don't speak to. the language. You can't read the road signs. You're relying on you know taxis and people who, you know, you've got no idea. You've got no concept of the currency. Mm. You're constantly calculating in your head how much this is compared to that. It's difficult. So the more experience, the better. But to find a way for people to gather experience and do it in a way that's accessible to more people, because you're yeah. right, the accessibility is to those who've got the resources to make it happen not the other way around and you know like we've just said with Lama, possibly one of the best mountaineers who's ever lived yeah no one knows who he is but he had the experience from day one all he's done is just collect this experience and build it into this package this you know this complete package of absolute confidence in the mountains being able to make those fluid continuous risk assessments whilst up on the mountain constantly assessing the weather constantly assessing the snow situations constantly assessing your clients that takes some real skill and you don't get that by paying for it or on a course yeah Yeah. or on a course you get that by doing it um but it has to be accessible because otherwise you end up where you know people don't come into the industry who really would yeah and i think the the thing which stuck with me and i remember a guy saying it to me uh ages ago is when I did Everest Base Camp, you know, gap year, 19 years old, I wasn't, no, it actually wasn't a gap year, I wasn't going to university, and I actually decided to go to university while doing this trip. And he was saying to me, my job as a guide is not to get you up, it's to get you back safely. Yeah. And that's the thing, is that that's the mindset that needs to change. Is I, when I've been on trips, I don't care about being the bad guy. All the blame can rest on me, but if I say, you know, we're not doing this, if I say this has got to change i don't blame like if someone's not feeling well i don't blame them i say look it's my decision we're turning around and that's the mindset that needs to change and you know there's just so much we could talk about we definitely can talk about it more just to wrap it up though what do you think you know for people that want to do this as a career and there are loads and i recommend everyone to try and do it because if it's what you love you should do what you love but what should people really do? What should be their mindset when gaining this experience? How should they do it in your in your mind? I think that you absolutely need to get yourself on some basic courses. Right? They're super important. Uh, an ML is a great, it's just mountain time, actually. You know, there's, there's a very small amount of teaching. Most of it is personally led experience gathering, right? And they're usually relatively cheap. That's you and a couple of friends car share your way up to scotland 
get on some hills, mark them down, write them in your logbook, come back. But you need to do some of the courses because you've got to get some of the experience. The bit after that has to actually, you have to give yourself enough confidence in your skill set to allow you to go out into the world alone or out with peers and spend time in nature. Okay, go out to the jungle, plan your expedition, take on what you've done in your courses. You are not selling an expedition. You're not guiding anyone. You are going out as a peer-led group to explore an area of jungle. I'll use the jungle just because it's, it's kind of there. Sure. Right? Where after you've done four or five trips to the jungle with your team of friends, which instead of costing you three and a half, four thousand pounds, maybe cost you 15, 1600 pounds. Because all you're doing is buying your flights and you're buying food when you arrive, right? You hire a car between you and they're super cheap in Southeast Asia and you can get yourself into an element of jungle, a little bit of Googling, some good Google Earth looking up, make yourself some maps, all of those kind of things. You have to get the experience, but you do not have to have guided experience. You need to have some understanding of how to operate in those areas. But I think, you know, when you mentioned the kind of zero to hero paddy style system, Okay, where you can go through and start as a recreational diver on day one. Three months later, you could be a qualified dive master working towards an instructor plan. You don't actually need your hand holding for all of your dives, right? No. I, I question how many times that individual has been out personally diving. How many times has it been on a Facebook page and Googled up, you know, Scarborough Dive Club and seen what days the rib goes out that week? And not just you. on a course every no, time no. just go out every and time just do it. So it costs 15 quid for a boat ride today go out dive with people you've never met before take a dive do that every day for 10 years all of a sudden now you're a pretty competent diver now you're totally ready to be an instructor because you've probably lived through 100 very different experiences underwater where you didn't have someone holding your hand you didn't have someone you could immediately look to who was going to fix the situation you had to fix it yourself and that's the same with all of these elements of travel. You know, being up here in the cold, right? I live up in the very north of Norway. It's snowing like crazy outside at the minute. We're very close to snowmobiles. We're very close to the, the skis coming back out. We're very close to the huskies being back on the trails. If everybody up here had to do something guided, no one would ever go outside. Yeah. But at some point, you get taught it, and then you master it. And the mastering has to come from within. And only at that point then are you ready to start applying for work. But this this feeling of people are happy to jump from being competent enough being guided to being the guide. But see, people seem really reluctant to jump from being qualified to being an, a solo explorer. Yeah. But I think we're missing the really important feature out. That solo explorer point that, you know, I remember when me and Josh first started discussing UE like eight years ago all of josh's holidays were spent in the mountains he would go with a group of friends they would hire a car or they would buy a cheap car in south america and they'd sell it when they'd finished and they'd go hiking for six weeks they'd summit a load of cool stuff and they'd come back with some great stories but there was no guide there there was no expedition doctor you were just a team of friends who went out and got that experience as solo travelers as solo adventurers same as i did in the jungle like you you know stuart you know i would go out with stuart in the jungle just me and him We'd yeah. hang out, we'd test equipment, we'd play with stuff, we'd film things, we'd spend time in that environment whilst we're also building up our own skill sets. We're also going through experiences which potentially can happen later with clients, so we now know how to deal with those. 
But the fact that we're so willing to dive from, great, I've had my hand held now for three years, now I'm ready to do it on my own. As in, I'm ready to take money to do it on my own. Actually, all you've really got any education in is making money out of an expedition. You've never really been out and and done the expedition for what it's there for. And I feel that that's where the problem lies. It's not so much in the passion for the adventure. It's why are you there? Because if you're there because you love nature and you love the jungle and you love being outside, then what you end up teaching with later in life is your passion for that environment. And that's infectious. That's You can't get better than an expedition guide mm-hmm. who is functioning on 100% passion. Maybe with yeah. like 10% nicotine and 10% <laughs> but, A bit know, of whiskey. Bit of whiskey, but it's mainly passion. Yeah. If the passion's not there, and actually your only connection to this environment and this industry is money, well, then you've kind of fucked it. And people will see through that. Yeah, but the, th- the thing is they don't. Mm. They don't for so long. For so and, long, until yeah. Until it goes wrong, and then it all kind of comes out in the wash. But the reality is, is that people need to be more confident to spend time alone in the wilderness, either on their own, on their own. I mean, you, we've got a fantastic apprentice in the business, right? We've got young Evan. Oh, he's great, yeah. Right? This He just spent seven weeks in his summer holidays living on beaches in Scotland, bumming around. He's doing exactly what I'm talking about. For he's sure. been and done stuff with us. He's been a stuff, done stuff with John Ryder. He's been and done stuff all over the kind of bushcraft and survival industry as an intern, as a helper. He's dug more long drops than most people I know. And he's still a young lad, but he's spending his private time doing this stuff. And you guys own. should follow him. Because, oh, I'm going to link it in the description because yeah, he's an awesome guy. He, the, you know, the junior explorer, it's fantastic because he's doing exactly what I'm talking about. He's going out there and doing these things off his own back, self-funded, because adventuring is relatively cheap if you're actually willing to drop the guides and the big umbrella over your head and actually just put a pair of boots and on. And the ego. Yeah, just going yeah. out and just doing Grab something simple. Grab a rucksack and fuck it up do things wrong but do them wrong when it actually there's not that much riding on it because the fact is is when you get into the realms of being an industry and selling your guiding skills there is never a excuse for getting it wrong you have to have learned those lessons so i think that's a great way to close it out yeah man yeah i i couldn't agree more and there's so much i think anyone listening could tell there's so much more we could talk about and we are going to talk about it but we hope you've enjoyed this first episode of the mini-series. We can't wait to share more with you. And if there are things that you'd like us to talk about, let us know, because we're really open to just talking about anything and bringing in guests to talk about really specific topics. Uh, on a side note, though, if you could please rate this podcast, it's a massive help to us to help us grow it. And above all else, make sure you subscribe to stay up to date with everything that we're doing as we explore medicine on the frontier. Bye.